I want to try to push you guys a little bit this morning, and, and let's, let's see how far I can push before you break. You know. But we've been talking about the way of Jesus. We've been talking about the contemplative way. We've been talking about the spiritual journey. We've been talking about the first and second halves of life, and what we've been trying to say is that they're all the same thing. All right, all those are, are just different ways of saying the same thing. It is, in effect, a hero's journey. It is the journey from birth to death that we all are part of, of course. The journey from the child to the adult to the elder, hopefully. And it is a journey from the simplicity of the child to the complexity of the adult and the adult world. And then if we're willing, you know, and then if we're aware enough, then we can fall back into the simplicity again of the elder, of the sage, of the wise person who can then bring something back into the community. We can also talk about it in terms of the first and second half of life. For the first half is about acquiring, and the second half of life is about relinquishing. First half of life is about looking outward for meaning and purpose and identity, and the second half realizes that it only comes from within. But when we, te- when we attach to there, when we start to find out about our real identity and where real meaning and purpose comes from, then it re-infuses meaning and purpose into all our outward tasks. So through the midlife crisis, when those outward tasks are starting to wear thin and you're starting to burn out, to be able to then turn inward, find that re-infusion, and then turn back out. This is Jesus' way. He says it's the only way to the Father, because the only way to the Father is by vanquishing the ego, as we talked about last week. We need to vanquish the ego as the boss and turn the ego into the employee. Stop looking at the ego as our identity, who we really are, with all its attendant fears and focus on outcomes in the future, and realize that it is a tool that we can use and need to use for physical life, but it's not who we are. If we can start to move in this way, if we can start to move through the vanquishing of the ego to something that is much deeper and more connected, we're going to have this profound shift, a profound shift of attitude, of perception, of presence. Everything that Jesus calls kingdom and the experience of kingdom. Jesus describes all of this. Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, right? Everything that he says there, those eight Beatitudes, are descriptions of what this shift looks like in a human being. To be poor in spirit, to be the peacemaker, to be pure in heart, to be merciful, to be gentle, all of these things are part of the experience, that anavim spirit that we've talked about on and off here. Someone who realizes that they're powerless to change their own circumstances, and so the reliance on God, reliance on the power greater than self, is what comes to bear. He tells us how to do it. He says, you've got to sell everything. Rich young man, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. When the person finds the treasure in the field, they don't just grab it and run with it. They leave it there, and they sell everything that they have and buy the field. Same thing with the pearl of great price. It's about relinquishing. We cannot get this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, this attitudinal shift, this profound transformation directly through acquisition. We do it indirectly through relinquishing everything that we think we know and everything that has given us a sense of power 
a sense of certainty because those are illusions in life. And when we let go of those, then everything starts to change. So I teased you last week with a, a larger and more epic story in the Bible that is going to bridge three huge books. First is Genesis, where we find the incarnation of ourselves into this world. And also the development into a reasoned human being, which means we've got to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And then moving toward Job, to the transformation that happens in the pain and the suffering of, of adult life. And then finally, to Ecclesiastes and the consummation of understanding exactly where this all leads us in this life. What really is important? What really is meaningful? Now, these three books and the descriptors I've just given them are mine. You know, I chose the words because they sound kind of cool and they rhyme, right? Incarnation, transformation, consummation. You know, but it's going to be my interpretation based on the scholar's work on each of these books. But tying it all together is something that uh, I've been trying to see how Scripture handles these themes in the most broad way so that we can get the biggest look at what Scripture is offering us about how this journey is accomplished, how we actually go about this transformation. Now, can I do that? Is that legal? Can I come up with my own interpretation here? You know, this is something that we have to actually think about because before we can look at these books in this way, we're going to have to deal with this. Can anyone interpret Scripture anything other than literally? Because this is where we've been for the last 500 years. I mean, Martin Luther in the in the Protestant Reformation, right? And, you know, it was sola literalis, which in Latin means liter, literal, literally alone. Only literally can the scriptures be interpreted. And that's where we've been so much in terms of Western Christianity since then. So we, we are going to need to deal with this fixation that we have as uh, modern Western readers on the literal reading of the scripture before we'll ever be able to see the additional layers of meaning, the deeper layers of meaning, and the depth of meaning that is really in God's scripture. And if you think about it, insisting on a, on a literal reading of scripture is really built on first half of life tools, isn't it? It is our, our avoidance of uncertainty, our intolerance for uncertainty. It's our need for, for certain answers, everything being right and wrong and being clear. Those are first half of life tools because we can't handle paradox. We can't handle something that remains unresolved. And yet, that's life. Life never really resolves. We keep moving through the mystery. We move through the uncertainty. And yet the ego wants to attempt control by imagining that there is certainty, by imagining that there is this way of being able to control answers. Now, truthfully, I want to be the most literal guy in the room when it comes to the Bible, because this is important to me. I've spent decades on this subject. But in order for me to be truly literal with the reading of the scripture, I have to read it in the context in which it was written. I have to read it in the context in which it was first understood. Because, let's face it, ancient scripture wasn't written for us. It was written for the people that, whose eyes they were looking into at the time. It was written for themselves. We are reading somebody else's mail, if you want to take a look at it that way. 
So how do we do that? How are we going to make this, this switch? First of all, if we can understand the difference between ancient Jews and Greeks, because we are heirs to Greek philosophy. We are heirs to the, the Greek way of thinking, Greco-Roman, but Rome was also based on Greek thinking. So we need to understand the difference between the way we think, the way we look at things, the way we write, and the way the ancient Jews did. Because our scriptures, both Old and New Testament, were written by ancient Jews who were Eastern in their thinking and very different from the Greeks who were Western. Now for the Jews, first of all, just a couple of points. The Jews were always dealing with function over form. They always were interested in how something functioned and how it worked, not what it looked like. If I showed a pencil to you, you would say, okay, it's yellow and it's about five inches long and it's this thin and it's got this and that. A Jew would say it's something you write with. Why are there no descriptions of any of the characters in scripture other than some maybe vague, beautiful or whatever? Don't we want to know what everybody looked like? The Jews don't care about that. What they tell us is how these characters functioned. It's action over thought, concrete over abstract. It's halakha over theology. Halakha is the word in Hebrew that means walk. How do you walk with something? How do you act? How do you purport yourself, comport yourself? That is what they're talking about. Over abstract theology and abstract thought. Analyze the scriptures. Take a look at Jesus' teaching. He doesn't give us a lot of theology. He gives us ways of living life that will bring us into God's presence so that we will know that we know. And even knowing is the word originally for hand, yada. And so to know something in Hebrew thought is to be able to intimately handle it to have intimate experience and familiarity with. That would be knowing, not an abstract thought. And one other thing that's really important is that the Jews have something that some scholars have called block logic. Our Western logic, based on Greek philosophy, is the law of non-contradiction. You go from a premise to a conclusion in one straight line, and only one thing can be true at a time, right? Law of non-contradiction. In Jewish thing, thinking, they have block logic, blocks of logic that within themselves are self-contained and they make sense within that block, but they'll sit right next to another block and be in complete tension and contradiction with them, and they'll just let it sit. In Exodus, Pharaoh hardens his heart against Moses and the Jews and will not let them leave. But in the next verse, God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let the Jews leave. Two very different statements and yet just left unresolved side by side. Which is it? See, we really want to know because does Pharaoh have free agency or not? Can he make his own choices or is he just fated to do what God tells him to do? These are big questions to us. To the Jews, they understand that this is what life looks like. Sometimes it looks like a nut. Sometimes it don't. Where, what's happening in that day? Sometimes it looks like you have free agency. Sometimes it seems like the stars are controlling. This is the human experience. And they just lay them down side by side, unresolved, because this is the mirror of life. This is what life looks like. They aren't interested in making one thing true and only one thing correct all the time. They're interested in laying down the paradox by which we will then understand more and more of our relationship with God different ways of thinking that they have turn into different ways of teaching and different ways of writing. For the Greek, it was authoritarian. 
For Greek, you have a representative, kind of like what I'm doing right now, right? He said, I, I have studied, I know everything, and I'm going to tell you what is true and what is right. That's the typical way that it goes. Think of a PhD, think of a professor, think of a, a teacher or a pastor with that kind of authoritarian attitude. You know, they have studied, they're telling you what you need to believe in order to get a good grade, in order to get through with life, and so on and so forth. And that's it. That's the end of the story. There's a great uh, old movie called Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield, where he's going back to school as a middle-aged man, right? And he, he's, he's kind of phoning it in at the beginning anyway, and he can't write his paper, and he has to write a paper on Kurt Vonnegut's novels or something. So he's very wealthy, so he pays Kurt Vonnegut to write the paper for him, and he gets an F. Because the professor says, obviously you don't know anything about Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. That would be the epitome of this Greek authoritarian style. You know, we know what we're talking about. Don't ask any questions. I don't know if a pastor has ever done that to you. You know, just you know, don't ask that question. Or, you know, scripture will interpret itself was one that I got a lot of times. Just don't question. But the Hebrews are so very different. With the Hebrew, there is no single authority. They're, they do what is called a dialectic. A dialectic is a systematic system of reasoning that involves conversation, it vol involves argument, it involves examining opposing ideas, kicking them around, letting them bump up against each other until you finally get to the truth. But there isn't necessarily just one truth. There can be multiple ideas that are absolutely acceptable as long as they are supported by Scripture. So maybe you've heard the old thing, if you've got two rabbis in a room, you've got ten opinions. That's absolutely true. If you've been around Jews at all, you know how much they argue and how much they go round and round. And it, it seems like they're fighting, but they're not. This is their way of getting to truth. Students in a Jewish system are encouraged to challenge authority. They're encouraged to challenge ideas. They're encouraged to question they're encouraged to run down their own paths and find out what is true because those things that are true for them are valid as long as they are supported by Scripture and the evidence there and don't violate huge principles, of course. There's got to be some guidelines. But within that playing field, this is what's going on. See, this is why we have the type of teaching style here that we do. It's because we're trying to emulate that Hebrew style. We want the dialectic. We want the conversation. Yeah, here on Sunday mornings, it's a monologue. Okay, fine. But when we get into our Zoom groups, when we have conversations, it's all question and answer. And we're not telling you what to think. We're hopefully showing you how to think in terms of Scripture, giving you tools to be able to do that. But you have to run down your own journey. Nobody can take it for you. This is another difference between east and west, between Hebrew and Greek. And so, if we're really going, and plus, not forget, these are the people who wrote our scriptures. So if they wrote the scriptures with this mindset, worldview, with this context, then they meant to have it read and interpreted this way as well. And the Hebrew language itself gives rise to multiple interpretations many of which can be correct at the same time. The language, the way it's constructed, especially ancient languages, have many meanings and layers of meaning just built into the language itself. So if we're going to read these ancient texts, then we're going to need to move past the simple literal interpretation if we're going to get to the fullness of what the author and ultimately what God is trying to tell us. How does this work? 
Now, the Jews had something called partis. And, you know, Hebrew is only written with consonants, and so you can add in the vowels. And so they loved to do that, where they had the consonants, and then they would add in the vowels. Partis means garden. But really, it's the PR and the D and the S that stand for Peshat, Rez, Drash or Midrash and Sod. These are four levels of interpretation. The, only the Peshat, that first one, is the literal skin deep meaning of the text. When you get to the Rez, the Rez means the hint. You know, what is the scripture pointing at? What is it hinting toward? The Drash or the Midrash is the search. Can we search deeper to find meanings? Can we look at an ancient text and then apply it to what's happening right now? Now, pastors do this all day long, but they never imagine that they're actually applying it to the meaning of Scripture. They're just trying to add extra ideas and analogies to try to bring things home. But the Jews did this for real. If you could search out a deeper meaning and apply it to life today, that was a valid interpretation of Scripture as well. And finally, the sowed was the secret. This is getting down into the, uh, into the Bible codes, getting down in, into the uh, metaphysical aspects of Scripture and, and the secret aspects of Scripture, so numerical codes and everything. So all four of those layers of interpretation were valid to the Jews. And we only use just that top one. So you can see how much is going on here, that we can have multiple interpretations that all are acceptable. And not only that, but not all questions about Scripture are going to be immediately answerable. And so it is our responsibility to live with them, to move with them, to allow them to drive us into deeper understandings of our relationship with God. Now, having said all that, see how it mirrors the second half of life journey. If when we're moving from the certainty and the the singularity of first half life, everything is empirical, everything is external, to the second half of life where now we are embracing paradox, uncertainty, and mystery, and we're going within, you can see how this method of scriptural interpretation is geared toward that kind of experience, geared toward that deeper second half experience. And so it all kind of connects that way. To be able to let go of the ego's control over things and actually let God speak from the scriptures themselves. Because it's not about a right answer or a wrong answer in the abstract. It's about being led. It's about being encouraged. And it's about being willing to follow the direction that God is leading us and have scripture allow us to move in that direction as well. Today what I wanted to do was look at Genesis, because we talked about Genesis being the first part of this journey. This is how we begin life, right? This is how we enter into life. And what we're going to do here is a a bit of a midrash, a bit of a search. We're going to search into the scriptures and see how it describes the beginning of our journey. But as we do that, we also just need to take a look at the scripture themselves. First of all, how many creation stories are there? Can you answer that question? There's actually two. Did you know that there are two creation stories? How many flood stories are there? There are two. Did we know that? You know, two flood stories, two creation stories. There are many of these doublets, both in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and the Bible at, at large, where the stories are repeated. Abraham's covenant with God, there are two. Jacob's name change from Jacob to Israel, there are two. Moses' commission 
to be able to go and take the Jews out of Egypt. There are two different renderings of that story as well. You've got First and Second Kings, and you've got First and Second Chronicles talking about the same stuff from different points of view. This is all over the Bible where there are two different points of view, two different traditions, if you will. And so what scholars now believe is that the Bible really wasn't written in the way that we think of something or a book being written by a single author from start to finish. But it was compiled more like the way that a documentary producer compiles all the different material, eyewitness testimonies and books and writings and whatever they can find in the archives and compiles it into a whole. The, the final editor, author of these books took all of the Jewish tradition and compiled it in to tell the story of their relationship with God, both as a nation and as individuals. And so we have this idea here, a compilation of many sources and many different traditions. In the Torah itself, where Genesis is obviously the first book of the five, which was traditionally written by Moses, but most scholars now believe that there are four sources, primary sources, maybe different ones as well, and they're broken down into J, E, P, and D. The J stands for Yahwist, but the Germans who set this up, why <laughs> is a J in their language? So Jawist. And then Eloist, and that's the E. P is for priestly, and D is for Deuteronomist. And so those four show up at various places in the Torah in the first five books. Deuteronomy is mostly the Deuteronomist source, right? But there's combinations of the others. I know this is going to get technical, but I'm going to get off it in a second. The two that we need to deal with when we're looking at, at Genesis is the Yahwist and the Priestly. Yahwist is the oldest. Priestly is, is more recent, still in, in antiquity, of course. These traditions existed separately for centuries before they were compiled into the books that we now have. They no longer exist. The only way we can reconstruct them is through the biblical books themselves, which obviously is subjective. But there are ways that we can look and separate these books back out. One of them is by the name of God that they use itself. The priestly source always uses Elohim, which is kind of a generic name for God. It could mean God's not only Hebrew God, but it could also mean the Canaanite deities, the small g gods. It could mean angels. It could mean powerful earthly kings. It was an all-purpose kind of descriptor for a mighty leader, but also could apply generically to the divine the way we just use the word God. But the Yahwist uses the tetragrammaton, right? yod He vav He. We don't know how it was pronounced, the Jews didn't pronounce God's personal name. This is God's personal name. Maybe the one that he gave Moses at the burning bush, right? I am that I am. You know, Yehovah can literally mean Yah is, Yah exists, Yah I am. It can mean that if that's the way it was pronounced or Yahweh. Same thing, but we don't really know how it was pronounced because they didn't want to make, take the Lord's name in vain. They didn't pronounce it for so long that they forgot where the vowel points go. And so we still just have the consonants. But that is the name of God that's used in the Yahweh's tradition. So when we see these books either side by side or intertwined, we can look at the name of God, we can look at the word choices, we can look at the language discriminators, and we can tell which story belongs to which. And the details are changing as well. So we can sort of see the seams through this internal evidence. Now the Genesis story is side by side, the two Genesis stories. 
It's uh, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 4a, the first half of verse 4. And then the second story begins in the second half of verse 4, chapter 2, and goes to verse 25. It's interesting, but the flood stories are completely intertwined. But we can separate them again by using the, the technique I just talked about. In one story, it's uh, 40 days that the flood lasts. In the second story, it's 150 days. In the first story, there's two animals, which is the one we know, right? Two animals each. But in the second story, in the priestly version, there's seven pairs of clean animals and then only one pair of the unclean animals because Noah had to do some sacrificing at the end of this whole thing, so he didn't want to make them go extinct, right? And so... And in the one story, he releases a raven to see if there's any dry land, and the other, it's a dove. So there's all these differences, some that are harmonizable or really don't matter to the sense, and some that really make a difference. But here's the most important thing. The priestly version presents a view of God that is transcendent. He's high above everything. He's orderly. He's systematic. He's, he's kind of above human life, awe-inspiring. But the Yahwist presents a God who is intimately involved in human activity. In the flood story, he's talked about as grieving, as regretting having created human beings. And he actually shuts the door of the ark to keep them safe when the flood waters are rising. Two di very different views of God. And if you think of it, if the Yahwist is the older one, this anthropomorphic God who is very human, in, in emotion and action and connected with human beings is something that you would imagine would be earlier in their relationship with God as a nation and then evolving into the more transcendent God as time went on. Let's just take a look at Genesis 1 and uh, right at verse 1 and let's see if we can see some of this that's going on and see how this can talk to us about our journeys. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, and this is Elohim, because this is the priestly version. The first one is a priestly version. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Notice what God is doing here. This is the P source, the priestly source. He's transcendent. He's orderly. He's hovering over the face of the deep, right? And all creation is simply spoken into existence from on high. After this, he's going to create light and dark. We're going to skip these sections. He's going to create heaven and earth. He's going to create land and sea, and then all of the plants on the, on, in the sea and on land. He's then going to create on the next day the stars and the planets and the moon. He's going to then create the sea life and the birds and then finally land animals. Then at verse 26, you can pick it up there in your flyers or hopefully up there. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
Notice what happens here. This is the first story. There is no Adam and Eve. All of mankind was created at the same time, male and female, in numbers. He created them. And he gives them, as they're created all together, dominion over the earth. And so that he's, he's creating mankind and he's putting them in a preeminent position among all the other creatures of the world. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw that all he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So man is the last thing that God creates. It's his crowning achievement. It's the pinnacle of his creation. And he creates all mankind at once in his own image, in his likeness. So there's not just two humans in the world at this point. There's many of them. Now the story continues. This is still the first story, the priestly version in chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from his work, from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This, right in the middle of, of uh, chapter 2, verse 4, is the end of the first story, the priestly version. God created everything in six days with one day of rest and created man last and created them all together. Now the second story begins in the second half of chapter 2, verse 4. In the day, the Lord God made heaven and earth. Now Lord in in the lower caps there is always Yahweh. It's always the tetragrammaton, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. And so here it's actually Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. Now in the day that Bayom there is not just one day necessarily. It could be an epoch or an eon. It's some delineated block of time. But notice there's only one day here. In the day that the Lord God made the heaven and earth, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man, and man here literally is Adam, Adam. It means ruddy. It means of the earth. Adama is earth. Adam would be from the earth. The Lord God formed man, Adam, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. First of all, notice the different order of creation. All right? Man is created before any plant life, before any animal life whatsoever. And also notice God's intimate action here. You almost have the image of him bending over the ground, getting his hands dirty in the mud and the clay and and forming this man and then blowing the breath of life into his nostrils. But this is intimate. This is anthropomorphic. This is God intimately involved with his creation, part of his creation. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. 
Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the middle of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skipping to verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree in the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Don't you love that little detail there? He creates all these animals and all all this living stuff and then he brings them to the man to see what he would call them. This is God speaking. Didn't he know? (laughs) <laughs> what Adam was going to say, didn't he know? But this is, this is the intimacy of it. This is the, the, the conversational part of this, this contact with God, you know, this companion God as opposed to the transcendent one. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Now, he doesn't say in this second story that man has dominion over everything, but for him to name something gave dominion. That was part of Hebrew culture. You name your children, you had dominion over them. For Adam to name the beasts meant that he had dominion over them. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed." So here is Eve, who gets named later. But this idea of being naked and not ashamed is the perfect metaphor for the innocence, right? Your little kids, your dogs, they don't know they're naked. They just run around. They're perfectly happy until you put that silly Halloween costume on them. And they look miserable. But this metaphor, they didn't know that they were naked. For this complete presence, this ability to be completely present that a child has or an animal has, the innocence, this childlike quality, is all there just in one simple image. And then, of course, we then moved into Genesis 3, and things get a little darker because the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, this is a serpent talking, Indeed, God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. 
After that, God comes walking in the garden. They hear him. They know they blew it. And they run and they hide. And then, of course, Jesus says, where are you? And they say, well, we're hiding because, you know, we realize we're... Who told you you were naked? God asks. And then, of course, the punishments and the expulsion from the garden follow. Now, these obvious differences that we see in these two stories, right? First of all, the six-day creation as opposed to Bayam, which is just one day or one epoch or no days at all. The expanse of the epoch, the expanse of, of, the, uh, of time that we're talking about here. In the first story, there's a pre-existent chaos just hovering over the, the, the deep that is not habitable, but God makes it habitable. But in the second story, there's already land and streams it's not habitable because there's no flora, there's no plant life yet, there's no, there's no animals, and there's no caretaker. And God fixes that. There's a different order of events we see in the two that cannot be harmonized. You can't do it. Many have tried, but it really doesn't harmonize the two because they weren't meant to be harmonized. And that's the key here. Why would the authors of Genesis place these two traditions side by side knowing that they can't be harmonized. What were they trying to tell us? One is not right and the other wrong. Together they tell the whole of the truth. God as Elohim, this generic Semitic name, right, is showing us the transcendent nature of God, the awesomeness of God the high king of the universe, awe-inspiring, totally, wholly other than we as human beings. And yet, Yahweh, God, right? He is the personal name, the unspoken personal name, but he's here now. He's an active participant. He gets his hands dirty, sculpting in the dust and in the clay. He's participating with us. He's conversing. He's watching the unfolding of things. You even get the sense that he's sort of making things up as he goes along, right? He makes all this stuff and he says, you know, it's, it's really not good for man to be alone. I think we need to do something about that. It, it's, it's a whole different way of looking at God's interaction with us and with his creation, but not at the expense of the other, right? It's that God is both at the same time. God is transcendent. God is awe-inspiring. God is wholly other than we here. And at the same time, he is still our companion. That love and power can coexist in this way. The micro and the macro can coexist in this way. God is the God of the macro, but he's also the God of the micro here in our hearts. And in our lives, as we go through life, God is going to be oscillating between those two over and over again. We can't choose one at the expense of the other. To lay these two down side by side is to give us a clue into the experience of a relationship with our God. Mysterious on one hand, and then we can lay our head down in his lap in the next breath. We need both at the same time. There are two different views of humanity here that we need to take a look at. First of all, in the priestly version, the first story, the whole race is created in mass. It's created together. Male and female are created together in God's image and in God's likeness. In this first story, the human beings are like royal figures, if you think about it. 
In that culture, the king's son, if the king's son came to you, it was as if the king were standing before you and had all the same power and all the same might as the king himself would have had. The son was like an avatar of the king. Also, what the king would do if he had a far-flung kingdom or empire would be put statues of himself in various parts of the kingdom, which is a reminder to the people of the king's presence and authority and sovereignty over their land. In many ways, the priestly version looks at human beings in that way. We are God's representatives here on this earth. We are the caretakers. We are the ones who are taking care of things and are in charge here. We are the avatars of God. Now, that doesn't mean we're doing a very good job of it, but that was the idea here. This presence throughout God's kingdom, this pinnacle of God's creation. But in the second story, we have one man and one woman created. And they're naked. I was going to say naked and afraid, but that's not good. They were naked. They were vulnerable. And they were certainly fallible, right? They're servants in the garden. They are the caretakers, not the ones who lord it over so much, but they're the ones who need to take care. God waits to see what man is going to name the animals, which then gives him a sense of dominion. But he's caretaking in the same way that the temple priests were caretaking of the temple duties, which then gives us the idea that this is God's sanctuary. This garden, all of earth, is where God lives. He is here. He is present with us right now as we care for this garden. He's not high above us someplace, but he's right here and right now. And so again, humans have this dual quality as well, both created in God's image with all that that implies for our worth and our value, but at the same time, we're naked and we're vulnerable and we are fallible and we're capable of the utmost folly at any given moment. We are both at the same time, and we need to be able to see ourselves. These seeming contradictions in God's nature and in our nature can only be understood fully if they're held together in tension and realize that they're going to be oscillating in our experience, not one or the other all the time. But these various natures are always going to be present one way or another. This is the way that scripture works when it presents us with these paradoxes, presents us with different stories. There's a reason that they weren't resolved in ancient times to give us one consistent story that we long for in our Greek minds but are not given. We don't know that we're naked. (laughs) This is perfect metaphor for the innocence of the child I remember when our two-year-old finally shut the bathroom door for the first time. You know, I, I really mourned that moment because it was a time when he finally transitioned over to understanding that he was naked. But that metaphor, that is the way we enter into, each and every one of us enters into this life. We enter into the life naked, vulnerable. We don't know that we're naked. We are incarnated into this world, into our human journey with perfect simplicity, with pure presence, with a pure sense of connection. But that can't last for a human being or we're not a human being. We're not supposed to stay in that state of pure innocence. We have to come to age. We have to come to the age of reason. We have to eat 
from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in order to become self-aware, to be able to think about past and future, to think abstractly and spatially, to be able to know the difference between good and evil and that our choices actually matter. The part of us that is created in God's image is the ability to choose, to choose love. Because if love isn't a free choice, then it's not love. If it's coerced in any way, it's no longer love. God gave us that ability, his likeness, his image, in order to be able to love as God loves. This is what it means to be human. This is what it means for us to be different than the animals. Eating from the tree was not an act of disobedience. It was simply child development, if you want to look at it that way. It's what absolutely makes us human. So when God lists all the punishments, he's not actually cursing us in the sense of a punishment for a crime, even though it's written that way. He's describing what life is going to be like and experienced within the ego consciousness. Within an ego that can imagine itself to be separate from, in competition with, the fear that comes from that position, the worry, the obsession with future, with hoarding, with all the things that we do in order to survive because of the way our mind works is what he's describing. Yes, women, in pain, you're going to deliver your children. Yes, man, from the sweat of your face, are you going to be able to bring bread from the earth? It's a description of human life that we all know. It's what life is all about. It wasn't a punishment. It is the way we will experience it because we're human beings. This illusion of separation and fear, this is the pain that we feel in life. On that day, he said that you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Yes, we died to the pure presence and connection that we felt as an infant, as a child. We died to that. But what it opened us up for is the ability to actually choose love, to choose love as God chooses love. And once we're there, there's no going back. We can't go back the way we came. He sets up the cherubim who've got four faces. They see in all directions at once with the flaming swords and bar the way back into Eden so you can't go back. But if we are willing to go forward... If we are willing to lean into the pain and the suffering and the great love that comes from our ability to choose that, it's going to bring us to the edge of things. It's going to bring us to the precipice. It's going to bring us into those limit situations that we talked about a few weeks ago, a situation that brings us to the end of our ability to control, brings us to a sense of our own powerlessness, because it's at that moment that we can experience what Job experienced in his story. It's at that moment that we can make the choice that Job made in his story that will take us to the transformation, that profound shift in perception, that profound shift in presence that can only come when the ego is finally vanquished at a moment like this. And it's the great suffering and the great love that will take us there. Now, when this happens to us in life, we can, if we choose, try to keep trying to understand and keep trying to control. That's what all of Job's friends were trying to do throughout the bulk of that story, trying to explain to him what he did wrong and how it works. 
We can go that way if we want to. Or we can go the other way and finally begin to trust what we can't fully understand. We can begin to trust as a dependent of God, as a child of God really does, to be able to rest in divine providence without having to understand it all. And when we do that, we are taking our first turn back toward the garden where we need to go and will go in Ecclesiastes when we get there. But that's another story. Let's pray for now. Father, these ancient texts, these scriptures that we revere are a miracle. They're pure genius. Their wisdom runs so deep. We know that you had a hand in fashioning them. The inspiration that you gave to writers who were connected with you to be able to write things that last thousands of years and speak to people of such different cultures and understandings and worldviews is miraculous. Help us to be willing to let go of any biases we have, any limitations we have in our thinking so that we can see what's really here and see the depths of it and not take my or anyone else's word for it, but to experience it ourselves first person so that we will be convinced of what we are convinced of is the message you are giving us at this particular time in our life that will move us forward to make the choices we need to make to face the frightening things that we need to face to be able to lay down more and more of ourselves so we can get to that transformation and we can see life through your eyes, which changes everything. That's what we want, Father. So continue to bless us, continue to be with us, continue to guide us, and let us know that you are here every frightening step of the way as we go closer and closer to you and your way. Thank you, Lord, for everything. Never let us forget we can only love, do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.